wish you a happy Mother's Day. I uh, had the opportunity to go and visit with my folks this past week, and we go through a, a very familiar tussle at the end of it each time that I leave home. And that is, they want to stock me up with groceries, and uh, mostly, which consists of more vegetables than I could ever consume in two or three weeks. Let's say mom's going to go bad, but she doesn't care. And, and so we had the familiar thing. And also, I want to, so they, they just keep on putting more and more groceries into my hand and into my car. And I keep on saying, please, I mean, also because, you know, do you guys have enough, you know, milk and different things that they're kind of keep on plying to me. And my mom just beaming as, as, as we're at, you know, at the driveway. And she just says, I want to give you everything. I want to give you everything. And that to me was such a revelation of the face of God. And as we're going to pray over our mothers, it got me to thinking about the equality of, of men and women that we firmly affirm with all of our hearts does not mean a reduction in the fact that they are one can be replaceable for the other. They are uniquely created male and female. And so they show us the different faces of God. And in that moment, I saw the face of God that has the heart of a mother, which is also attested in Scripture, the desire to give everything that God has and of himself. And there, a, a lifetime was in that statement from my mother that my mother, even though I cannot recall, I think she can still recall the feeling of what it was like to have me in her womb when I was totally dependent and she was my everything and she had to give everything. All my resources, my nourishment came from her. And I think that stays with a mother and child for a lifetime. I don't think that bond ever severs just because she's now, the, the child is now out of the womb. And that is the way that God has created female in that unique way. And then in a few weeks or a time from now when we get to Father's Day, Dad, who also wants to give to me, never carried me in his belly. I was never carried in his belly. But it's always a different... I just start, start to think on the drive home. It's always a different sense I got from my father. Adam, as his primary commandment of God under God, Adam was to care for the land and the, the, the garden, the world. There's always been a sense in my father of going out and working the land, toiling the garden, toiling the world by the sweat of his brow so that he could give me the world. What could he go out there and gain in the world so he could give me the world? My mom wanted to give me all of herself. My father wanted to give me all of the world. And in those two images, we have the faces of God who wants to give us all of himself and all of creation. And this day, we celebrate that view of God we get from all of our mothers. And so as we thank God for our mothers, you want to say thanks, Father, for these amazing creations in our sisters. And we want to thank you, God, for the revelation uniquely that we receive from mother's love. There is absolutely no substitute in the world for the experience of mother's love. It is divinely created by God to show a tenderness of his heart and compassion for those he has created, those he has made. And so one in that heart, if we would just have a time of prayer for our mothers, if you are near a mom or a wife that is a mom or a wife that is to be a mom or a woman that is going to be a mother, and any female is what I'm trying to say here, if you just want to put a hand over them and say, God, may this person be blessed by being a revelation of your heart and all the tenderness and compassion and desire to give all of herself to others. That's from you. Thank you, God. Would you continue to increase that? We thank you, Father, for that. Bless this. Thank you, Lord. Bless this woman, this daughter of yours. Can we spend just a few moments praying over the women in our congregations?
just want to lay a hand on their shoulders and for all that they do, allow them a few moments of rest to be filled, to be refilled. Remember mothers to be, that's everyone. Father, we thank you, God, for every amazing display as we get to explore this world that you have placed us in. Every new discovery, a facet of the nature and the character of God, and that unique, intensely powerful, tender, amazingly strong love that we feel from you that is shown forth radiantly, gloriously in every woman here. The way that you have equipped them and created them to be one who is able to give their entire being and pour that out on other people. Father, that that is who you have made them to be and that it fulfills their created design when they are given away, when their resources are given away to others, and especially their resource of love. So we ask for each one of these mothers, mothers-to-be, would you fill them, Lord Jesus, in all they are? Would you always be their source of ever-replenishing living water that when they run dry, they could know where to go and tip their cup to again drink from you who are their life, that they may in their each one unique and personality and fashion may display and show your love. We thank you, God, so much for everyone. We bless them. We ask for your covering and protection over them always. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We only have time for a short word, God. And uh, so about, I'm, I'm thinking about maybe 20 minutes or so. And usually I don't like to do that because somebody once told me a long time ago that sermonettes make Christianettes. And I don't want to have small, short-minded Christians. But just in the same, in scope of our Mother's Day and the different things that went on today, just have a little bit of time for a few reflections. And one of those reflections to be from the book of Jonah. I don't know if anybody's, their favorite book is Jonah or their favorite prophet is Jonah, or their favorite Old Testament character is Jonah. I, people that I know, I know an Abraham, I know an Amos, I know an Isaac, I know an Isaiah, um, I know a Noah. I don't know anybody, I almost knew a Zechariah, but they wouldn't go for it, and they named Zachary instead. I wanted to know a Zechariah. But no one, I don't know of a single person who's named their child Jonah, because we have a really bad impression of this man, and rightly so. He is always, he's uh, morbid to the point of, uh, dep- uh, he always wants to die. He's petulant, he's whiny, he screams about this plant, what is all that about, we'll get to that in just in a few short minutes. And he, uh, not more than a little bit of a racist, this man he is. And so, as we look into this book, I would like for us to alter our attitudes toward him, for one humongous reason. When you read this book, which you can read it in one sitting like that, it's four short chapters. God is so compassionate to this rebellious, petulant, morbidly depressed man. So compassionate. So tender, so patient, so understanding to this man. And the major character in the book of Jonah is not Jonah or the whale. 
It is God Almighty who is invisibly hovering over this book to tell you this is what I am like. And when you feel like you are petulant and whiny and depressed and not wanting to be with other people that are not like you and disobedient and rebellious and run the other way, hear from the book of Jonah my compassion, my grace, my love that always desires not to force you into my way, but to win you back to my heart by compassionate, sacrificial, long-suffering love. The heart of God is all over the book of Jonah. And so with that, we enter in. Would you just pray with me just briefly as we come before him, even as we come before his word? Every time we open up this book, Father, we pray for eyes to see. For we recognize that even when you were on this earth in bodily form, Jesus of Nazareth, where you could be touched, talked to, listened to, followed, served, that there were many who could not see you and who were just as blind as that blind man and who needed very as much a touch of grace that would heal their blindness, greater than physical blindness, to be able to simply see you for who you are. How? That when God dwelt on this earth, that people could not see you and mistake you for just another man. And yet we also do that all the time in our lives and with your scripture. We ask that you would give us the grace to touch our eyes to heal us of our blindness and our deafness so that we may see you in the word given to us. For we ask this, Lord God, in Jesus' name. So as we start out, and this is just flying through a few of the major parts of the book, we'll start from verse 1. The word of God came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. And when I say that already this is grace, it's because he does not say the city of Nineveh is wicked and I want to destroy it. Don't go. Don't try to save them. The heart of God is that this city is wicked. They are people who are godless and I'm sending you to save them. I want to save them, Jonah. And so he sends Jonah to Nineveh, this great city. And Jonah, the first thing that he does, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish, which is exactly in the other direction. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying for the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. And this is an amazing note here right at the beginning of the book of Jonah. It does not say that Jonah was fleeing from the Ninevites, which he obviously was. But more importantly, theologically from the book of Jonah, is that Jonah was fleeing from God. And that first conviction that we receive from this book is that whenever you flee the people that God wants you to go to and serve and to save and to care for and to tend, you are not just fleeing the people. You are always fleeing the Lord. And I know I am way too critical on the NIV, but can I just say, think of it this way, the, and I'm just about to be again, so that's why I'm saying all these things in uh, you know, uh, pre, uh, pre, precursor. Um, the NIV, treat it like an old friend. It is my old friend. It's my first Bible. It's a place where I first got to learn about the Lord and, and walk closer to Jesus. But there is so much that you can learn from fresh friends, new ways of looking at Jesus. And so pick yourself up another translation and see what that translation might yield. And uh, the ESV has been just one of the best new English translations. So highly commend it to you. But if you looked at the ESV, but you'll also find it in the NASB, the NASV 95, the NRSV, the KJV, all other translations 
have actually been just slightly more accurate and faithful in the translation. That when it says that Jonah flees the Lord, it retains the actual Hebrew, Penei Yahweh, which is Panim, the presence of the Lord, which is literally, Panim means literally the face of God. We who are constantly seeking to not just know a, a nameless, faceless God, some God I just pray to and ask for things. I, I want his hands to help me, raise me up. But we who are seeking the face of God, who want to know him in a relational way, we want to see his face and know the look of love that is there for me, personally, relationally. We seek the face of God. And the thing, the first thing we learn from the book of Jonah is the face of God is being able to be seen when you go to the people that God desires for you to love in his name. And it is directly in running away from those people that you also flee and cannot see and obscure and evade and hinder yourself and occlude the vision of the face of God, the presence of the Lord. In the New Testament, Jesus says there are four, I think, to the best of my knowledge, there's only four places where Jesus says, I abide here. I dwell. It is in prayer. John 15, it is in the Word. It is in the Eucharist when we take Holy Communion that in ways that we don't fully understand, Jesus inhabits, communes in that time for us to physically again imbibe and ingest. There's one other place from Matthew 25 that Jesus says that I am there and that is in the least of these. Those who need Him most that when you care for them, you are caring for me. I inhabit these people. Jesus and the face of Jesus is to be known when we go to those that he calls us to. And to flee and run the other direction is to not just run away from what God calls us to and commands us to. It is to flee the knowledge of God. I've been having my mind radically reconfigured by another reading again through the Bible. And what God is showing me here is that my impression and understanding of the kingdom of God and the presence of God and God himself as somebody who is very distant, very far away. And so that when we think about heaven and heavenly realities, that we're thinking about someplace that is so far removed, my mind is being powerfully reshaped that the kingdom of God and where Jesus is recognized as Lord, is honored, there he is. And so that is not so much that Jesus needs to come closer, which there is a sense in that is true, but there's a sense in which Jesus is right here, meaning in this church, in our community, in Westchester, in your homes, in your schools. And what needs to happen is not that he's not there and he needs to come there, but that his face needs to be revealed wherever you are. And if you're desiring a greater revelation of Jesus. I want to see more of his face. I want to know more that my life is being lived out in the presence of the Lord. It comes through obedience in building the kingdom of God as God was sending Jonah to build my kingdom there. Already in the Old Testament, there is a a cutting away of nationalism. Just me, my people, people that are like me. It is a sending of Jonah to these people that are not like him that are even enemies. And when you build and establish the kingdom of God, and when my name is known among these people in Nineveh, in Assyria, there you will see my face. There I will meet with you. 
Wherever the kingdom of God is vitally being built up by the people of God, his presence and his face can be seen more clearly. It is one of the reasons why I believe that when we send our folks off to missions trips to different parts of the world and we see a place where God's kingdom is so powerfully, so visibly being built up that their encounters, not just with a church or a ministry, but it is in their meeting of those who are in desperate need of Christ and meeting them with Jesus in a vital, consistent fashion every single day of a mission trip is just, I just want to show Jesus to people. They not only get more connected with the kingdom of God there, but a wondrous thing happens. The uniform testimony of every single person we've ever welcomed back from any of our missions trips is that I've known Jesus in a way that I haven't known before. It wasn't magic. It wasn't mysterious. It wasn't this mystical thing. It doesn't just happen. I was there engaged, laboring for the kingdom of God, doing the thing that Jesus wanted me to do, helping the need, the least of those that Jesus called me to help. And in that encounter, somehow, God's face materialized. I don't quite know. I can't even bottle it up and formulate it. I wish I could so I could bring it back. But there's something about, I, I wasn't even thinking about, you know, I just, I just as I was, witnessing to people and sharing the gospel whatever needed to get done whatever needed to get done i just was found myself just gladly doing that whether it was sweeping up a room or helping clean up or or engaging in some kind of uh, outreach endeavor and mysteriously or in, in a sense that i don't can't figure it all out but i came away with more of the face of god i saw jesus more clearly it is the thing which drove in the new testament apostle paul's entire life and Paul is almost a counterexample to Jonah who flees the part of God's kingdom that, he's, that God is calling him to build up and in so also flees from the Lord. And then very quickly as we go through this, what we have here in Jonah is that Jonah is not so much, and let me just say this compassionately, he is not so much a bad guy. I don't think so. I mean, there's no, there's no uh, time to get into, into all the historical background of why he hates Assyria so much. He would have suffered and seen Israel suffer under the hand of Israel. Israel was in a place that was divided monarchy during this time. And so he had an axe to grind against Assyria. But it's not just that. I think between in this situation that Jonah has found himself in, where God is calling him to do one thing and build a kingdom in Nineveh, and yet he wants to go into Tarshish, and in between Nineveh and Tarshish, he finds himself in this nebulous spiritual limbo. And so he does the only thing that people do in such a state. When they know that life and vibrant walking with the Lord and encounter with God is in that direction, but it's going to cost too much, and I am not willing to count that cost or carry that cross. And so I want too much of the comforts of Tarshish, and so I want to go the other direction, but I know God's calling me there. And in that place, you resolve that tension in the only way that you can, and it has not changed in thousands of years. This is what Jonah did. But Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down, and he fell into a deep sleep. And so Jonah sleeps. And many people, there. it is not again that Jesus needs to be brought someplace far and someplace near. Jesus is here. There needs to be an awakening of a soul that has begun to slumber because it is no longer radically obedient to the call of the Lord and only doing so in in a ritualistic way. So the thing is, is when I say that Jonah is not a bad guy, is that when push comes to shove, you find the work of God 
that is already submerged inside the latent subterranean chambers of Jonah's soul that need to be brought forth. And the push that comes to shove is a storm that God lovingly sends. God loves this man and sends him a storm to shake him up. And if some of you feel like in whatever you want to call the storm, it could be job situation, relational, emotional, spiritual, whatever it is, if there's a storm in your life, you must recognize one of the keys of a maturing and healthy faith is to receive the storms of your life as not something where God is against me or forsaken me or has removed a protective covering of blessing over my life. Quite the opposite. Every storm that comes ever into your life, as we repeal back the invisible uh, corridors of Jonah, it is God at the helm allowing that storm to enter your life because a part of your soul has gone to slumber and he desires for you to wake up. And sometimes there's no other way to shake you awake than through the violent measures of a storm. But that violence is not antipathy. That violence is love saying, awake, awake. And so God shakes Jonah awake. And as he is being shaken, what falls out of him is who Jonah really is. And he remembers, I think, even for himself, this is who he really is. In verse 10, in verse 9, excuse me. He answered, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord. And again, the Lord is the covenant, the name, the L, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is a cipher for Yahweh, is the name of God that he names. I am a Hebrew, meaning I'm a Christian. I may not be acting like it right now. I may be in compromise and hypocrisy. But when push comes to shove, what can I tell you? I'm a Christian. I worship Jesus. I know him. I've come to know him. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. And when push comes to shove, and this is what I believe about every single true baptized believer in the Lord, when push comes to shove, when you are really distilled and refined by fire or shaken by storm, at the core of your being is not hypocrisy and compromise, but you are indeed a new creation, so that when Jonah is shaken to the very core of his being, What comes out is this is who I really am. I am a Christian. I know Yahweh. I worship Him. And He does the right thing. Before He was in this nebulous limbo and now He's got to make a choice. And He does the right thing, which is basically God wants me. Not you all sailors in this boat. God wants me because I'm disobedient. And He has found me out. There's no way I could flee from His presence. He has hunted me down on this boat. He knows who I am, knows where I am. And if you throw me over on the boat, the sea will calm and you will be okay. Throw me over. And these sailors are pretty good guys too. They're not believers. They will be. But they are pretty good guys. And they say, oh no, you crazy man. You're going to die out there. That's like the new, new NIV. You'll never make it. You're going to drown. And so, hey, we can't, we won't, we're not going to throw you over. And they try everything they could to try to get to shore and they, they paddle, they whatever. They try to make, so they rig the boat so they're going to ride out the storm without having to throw Jonah over. And they can't do it because you can never go against the sovereign will. The winds are too strong. The storm is too powerful. And so they know they're going to go down and they have to take a desperate measure. So Jonah comes back and says, I'm telling you guys, the only way to stop this storm is you've got to throw me over. And they're like, okay. He wants to go over it. Go over. And they throw him over. I'm not sure they're not happy about it, but they put him over and the storm calms. 
and those men become saved. This is a word for all of us. If you feel like that, I used to be a bold witness for Jesus. I used to shine for God. And someplace along my grown-up years, I've lost my shine. I'm a Christian. I know him, but I've lost my shine. I'm no longer a light where people can say, in my darkness, in my not knowing of God, someplace over that direction toward that person, I know is more of God. I see God becomes a little bit more visible when that person is in my life. Know that God can use you even when you sometimes feel like you are not usable. Jonah felt like he was completely unusable. He was in a state of rebellion, backsliding is our common word for it. And yet, through his fumbling, feeble witness, because of Christ's work, God's work in his life, somehow miraculously, these sailors on the boat, there was enough of a witness, enough of a testimony, enough of even Jonah saying, even in all my hypocrisy, I know I don't look like a Christian, but what can I tell you? I worship God. There was enough grace because of what God had done that these sailors had become saved. Never think that you are beyond the ability to God and His grace and power to use you as a witness and to save other people through your lives, even at your weakness, even at your lowest points. But there is more than God wants to do through Jonah. There's a work that God wants to do in Jonah. And so God saves Jonah from dying in the ocean. And he sends, you know, the thing is, the word Bama in Hebrew, every, no one's exactly sure, big fish, sea monster. It's most likely, we, I think the flannel graphs in the kids' stories, I think they've gotten it right, most likely is a whale. That's what I, I think. And so this whale comes along, and he swallows up Jonah. And Jonah is now brought into a place of repentance. And he's brought into a place of darkness. It is not the place where he wants ever to be. He's in a place where he is immobilized. He can't do anything. He's in a place of his utter destitution, most helpless, most weak. And God has sovereignly been maneuvering everything in Jonah's life to get into that place of weakness. It takes a lifetime of spiritual maturation to be as comfortable in the wilderness as in the places where you are in God's presence of joy and plenty. It takes a lifetime of spiritual maturation and growth to be as comfortable in the darkness and in the light of God. But that is the growth that God desires to work in all of your lives so that you would know that it comes not of yourself, but the power and the salvation and the glory and the grace always comes from the Lord. And He will lead you sovereignly, whether you want or not, into those places where He can show you that in your weakness, in your most helpless, in your most, you feel even most spiritually empty and void, God's grace is more than sufficient. So from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God, and he said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. This is chapter 2, verse 1. And he answered me, from the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the sea, and a current swirled around me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me and deep surrounded me. Seaweed has wrapped around my head. The roots of the mountains I sank down and the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, 
brought my life up from the pit. Oh, Lord, my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. And my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed. I will make good. And the end of this prayer of Jonah is salvation. Comes from the Lord. If you ever thought, or if you think now, my spiritual life, my salvation, is dependent ultimately upon my prayers, my my times in the Bible, my uh, going to church, my works, and salvation is a work that I primarily do, and ultimately I am responsible for. These moments of weakness are the only way to disabuse you of that notion of flesh and bring you back to the bedrock of which God means to put underneath the feet of your spiritual life, which is from the beginning to the end. It is by grace. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. He is my light. He is my salvation. He will carry me. He will guide me. He will always be the one who saves me, Hosanna. So this is the final word of this prayer. Salvation comes from the Lord. And this beautiful moment occurs. And this is only, I think, because today's Mother's Day that I made this association in my meditation over this verse. And that is, I remembered the word of Nicodemus to Jesus. And Nicodemus, when Jesus said, the only way to be saved is you must be born again. And as many people just don't get him, Nicodemus didn't. And Nicodemus said, what do you mean? I should crawl back in my mother's room and be born? How do you become born again? That's not possible. In this reading, if I put the canons together in the fullness of God's word, I almost see notes and hints of that exchange with Nicodemus and Jesus here. Because I see in Jonah coming to this place in his life where he's the lowest of his lowest point and is not returning to the belly of his mother but in the belly of the whale and he's about to be born again. He's about to be converted all over again. He has known the Lord but now he's at a place where he is ready to obey and not fight against God but to listen to him and trust and say, God, you know what's best for my life even better than I do. And it's a conversion. It's a surrendering again. He's being born again, this time to the whale, to the belly of the whale. He's becoming ready to, again, be born out into this world and serve the Lord, changed from when he first went into the whale. And one of the most beautiful notes of grace anywhere in either testament. And I take great issue with any person who says the God of the New Testament is a God of grace and the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath and that kind of bifurcation, that dichotomy. When the notes of grace are everywhere, Old and New Testaments. And here we come to a high watermark. In chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim the message I gave you. This verse has ministered to me on many occasions. God's word comes to me a first time. Obey, do it. Just just do this. Trust me. I know it's going to be hard, but I promise you more life leads this way. And I say no. And I run away. And I ruin everything. I make a mess out of everything because I disobeyed God's call. And I feel like in that place of destitution and weakness that God would forsake me and say, 
I told you, and you disobeyed and you rebelled against me, this is what happens. Rather, the testimony of my life has been the testimony of Jonah. When I am ready to turn around, which is all that repentance is, and say, I'm sorry, I'm turning around now, and I'm going to walk your way, I'm ready to follow, I am broken, I'm ready, and I'm surrendered, I'm going to go your way now. I find the Lord's word comes to me a second time, a second chance, a third chance a fourth chance, a fifth chance. I am probably on my 10,008,566,50,000,000 chance. I have been given every chance. And just when I think that I'm going to run out of chances, there's got to be some kind of limit. And God's accounting, His math is 70 times 7. You'll never run out of chances. I want to give you everything. Everything. We'll give you everything. You're never going to run out of second chances. There will always be the word coming back to you to obey me a second time, a third time, a fourth time. I can't but give you the testimony, uh, 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 the illustration at this point, as we are arguing to a finish. But at this point, I've got to pause and just tell you about, I think maybe some of you guys, history, uh, football history buffs, but it's one of the best illustrations I've ever heard about this verse. Uh, of, of Jonah it was in the story of 1929 Rose Bowl and I know I don't make a lot of sports references and, but this just is such an appropriate reference in the, in the Rose Bowl Georgia Tech and uh, UCLA and Roy Riggle he's, it's in the Rose Bowl Hall, Hall of Fame Roy Riggle somehow in the midst of the game he, he uh, secured a fumble and he ran 65 yards in the, his own direction in toward his own team's touchdown. And so he's running in the wrong way, and afterwards he was named Wrong Way Riggle. And so this guy's going six the the wrong way, and the only reason he stops, instead of, you know, he, he was going to score a touchdown, is one of his own teammates, Benny Lom, had to go run after him, and he was actually the MB, MVP of that game. He had to run and tackle and bring down this own guy. And so at halftime, this guy is in the... the the belly, the depths of the stadium, and he's got a towel over his head. He does not want to see anybody nor be seen. And Coach Price Nibs comes down, and everyone's thinking, so what are you going to do? Will you come down on him and lay down the hammer? What the heck? And Price Nibs says words that are very famous now, I think. And he says, the team that played the first half is plays the second half. Everyone, get out there. And they all leave somewhat stunned, somewhat silently, but they all go, except for Roy Riggle, who's still on the bench. And these words are in some journal of football, whatever. He says, I've ruined myself. I've ruined you, coach. I've ruined UCLA. I can't get out there. And Price Nip says to him, get up. It's game's only half over. Get up. Go back out. George Tech says that they never saw a man play a second half like Roy Riggle. He was fueled by the love and the security and the compassion of a man who was willing to give him a second chance. So must we be. Never must we say, it's over. It's over. I, you know, I used to be on fire for you and I just can't, I, I'm just, my life's going in diminishing and depleting energy and my passion for you, God, are drying up. Never can we say that. Never. There's an ever-renewable source of God and His compassionate love who is always saying to us, here's another chance. Okay, you missed it. You messed it up. Fine. Well, here's another chance. 
All right, are you going the wrong way again? I will bring a storm. I will bring something to stop you. And I will direct you back again. And so in my love and in my power and in my grace, you will see how sufficient I am for you in your life. And so God ministered to Jonah in this way. And so as you know, Jonah preaches the message. And he does obey. And he preaches to Nineveh. And Nineveh gets saved. It's like a, a city of like 100,000 people. And the Nineveh revival comes. And because he is still in the flesh and still a human being, I mean, it's so hard to understand this verse, I think, in some ways. You know, because he is angry with God for saving Nineveh. And he says these words, which are unbelievable in chapter 4. He says, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? And so it's not God saying, I told you so. It's Jonah who dare say to God, I told you. This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. What is it in the fallen human heart? What is it? This is the fall at its worst. What is it in the fallen human heart that I... I'm so thankful for grace amazing. When I've messed up and God does not kill me but loves me and saves me. And yet, when another, especially people that are not like us or that we don't like, when God shows them grace, that we grumble or that we are not willing to show them the same grace that God shows. And so in that close of Jonah, there becomes an amazing conflict and confrontation between the heart of God and the heart of Jonah. And it is all laid bare in this mysterious story of this plant that rises up in Jonah's distress and despondency. He builds himself a little shelter, as we always do when we are despondent. We build our own little shelters. Instead of God tearing it down, he allows this vine to creep up and to shade Jonah from the heat of the sun. And... Jonah sees this as a blessing and he starts to love this vine, but then God takes this vine away. And here's the exchange that comes between God and Jonah. But God said to Jonah, as Jonah is arguing against God about taking the vine away, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? The question mark blesses me at the end of this question. The question mark, the syntax, the grammar of this word of God in this verse blesses me. God is ever the Father, ever compassionate. He comes to him in a question. He reasons with him lovingly, tenderly, patiently, even toward the very end. He is a father to Jonah, not the judge who is ready to come down in righteous proclamation, statement, period. But in a question mark. Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do. I'm angry enough to die. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle or animals as well. Should I not have compassion? Should I not be concerned? Should I not love these people, Jonah? You love this vine so much. Should I not love these people? In these words, is laid bare both the heart of God and the heart of Jonah. 
Jonah loves the things that God has given to him, this vine for his shelter and his protection. And I think that we can substitute vine for any material blessing that God has given to us, whether it be cars, computers, houses, clothes, food, the way that God provides for us so well. And there's something in that provision that our hearts are drawn away to these things and we start in this most amazing of confusions to value these things more than people. And when that is what is being laid bare heart in the heart of Jonah, it is why that God had to give him this thing and then also to take it away, to expose fully where Jonah's priorities and his heart was. He loved this thing, this blessing, this material blessing gift from God. And what was in God's heart and what was in God's mind is saying, Jonah, look at these people. There are, in the city of Nineveh at that time, 100,000 people. Should I not care? Do I not love these people? And in the way, I think if Jonah, if it ends in this way, if it had continued on, I think so much, what they did in this exchange back and forth, what God wanted to do in Jonah's life was saying, do you remember the grace that I had shown you? I want you to show that same grace to these people. And Jonah, if we just could have extended the book of Jonah a little bit longer to chapter 5, Jonah would say, but these people, I mean, I love my fellow countrymen Israelites, but these people, these people don't know their left from their right. They don't know their moral rights from their wrong. They don't have the law. They don't know anything about it. And God's word to Jonah is, that's why I love them. That's why I have compassion for them. You look at it as the very reason why you can never be near these people, these immoral unbelievers, these non-Christians. It's the very reason my heart has compassion for them, that they have no salt, they have no light. They don't know their right from their left. It's why I sent you to them. It's why I sent you to go to them. It's why my heart goes out to them. I want to forgive them. They know not what they do. The heart of God is here in this this last verse. And the heart of Jonah is also laid exposed and bared to be healed, to be redeemed, to be restored. For us, the great and amazing thing is that we are not the heirs of Jonah. I want to have compassion on this man, but the amazing thing about the way that this ends in the book of Jonah in this kind of, it's left hanging. I mean, if you can just see it at the, at the end of this entire book of Jonah, it just is left hanging. It doesn't resolve. It ends on, left on this question that God is questioning Jonah. It just hangs there. The entire Old Testament just hangs there, I think. No, none of the books resolve. None of the books finish. They all just kind of hang there. Adam fails. Abraham doesn't see the end of what he's appointed for. Moses does not go into the promised land. David is not the perfect king he was supposed to be. Everything just hangs in the Old Testament. And then it drops in the coming of Christ Jesus when the Word became flesh. And Jesus now takes up where Adam failed and Moses failed. Abraham and David and Jonah. Which is why Jesus says to Uh, the people that are hearing him. Do you not know that one greater than Jonah is here? Meaning that where Jonah preached the message but did not love the people, I am here who preached this message of salvation and loved this people. And it is that Christ that he has placed in us. It is that Christ 
and whom we are in and whom God calls us in his name to go out to the world. I say this and I preach this message at this point in time, in the time of transition in our church, because I think that in this next phase, this next season of New Hope, that God is going to call you to more than you have been called to before. I think that God's going to call you out of your comfort zones and the places where you may have fallen asleep somewhat. And my hope and my desire and my prayer is that you will see that salvation is of the Lord and that you will make your vows to the Lord and fulfill them. And so the simple application that I'd like to give at the end of this message is that for leaders in our church, ask more of people at New Hope than you've asked before. And for those who are the people of New Hope, whether you're a leader or not, and kind of it's kind of one and the same in our church. But when you are asked, don't just say, this is uncomfortable, or I've never done it before, or, I don't know what this is going to entail. Let your first instinct and impulse be yes. Let it be yes. I'll try that. I'll do that. I think I can do that. I don't know that I can do that. There's no way I can do that, but with God's help, I can do that. But yes, yes, I will do that. So let us ask more of each other, and let us answer yes. Let, I'll do it. I'll do that. And the great goal of all this would be to find the face of the Lord in his presence. Would you pray with me as we come to a close? For those who dwell in darkness, for those who feel like that, I have extreme amounts of trouble these days, these weeks, these months, maybe these years of finding the presence of the Lord and feeling his love. I'll give you a word of grace and to say that the Lord is no less with you now than he was before. He is not dependent upon your emotions or your feelings. He is the I am and the one who has promised himself in covenant commitment in Christ Jesus to be with you always. And the very thing that God's calling you to do is is to believe and not doubt that he is there with you. It's not to seek a new emotional high and this new book or song or retreat or service that will give you that spiritual high again. It is to grow and mature and say, whether he gives or takes away, blessed be the name. I know my Redeemer lives. I will see him in the land of the living because of who he is. He is not an unfaithful God. Ever with me is the Lord, ever present. And let us all say together, in whether we are in times of darkness or in light, more of you want to see your face. I will accept the darkness and let my faith grow, but I want to see your face. I want to know your touch. I want to hear your voice. That nothing makes me happier in the world than the pani, pane Yahweh, the presence of the Lord. That's where my rest, my peace, my wholeness is. God, more of you. And may it come through the laboring for your kingdom. May it come through the acknowledgement of obedience in your name. So Jesus, I pray for us, Father, would you find this body nimble, able, willing, not stubborn, rickety, disjointed, (laughs) unable. May you find a body here, God, who wants so much to grow up into the head, which is you, that we are your body. And in doing your will, we could become ever more connected to you who are our head. May our presence be known by doing the works of you as we are your people. We say this in Jesus. Amen.